Okay, here we are, understanding your religion, the seven major doctrines that define the Christian faith. This is lesson number nine in that series entitled Error and Consequence. Uh, let's uh, first of all begin by reviewing what we have done so far. The last three major doctrines which uh, you know, we talked about are a set. You know? There are three major doctrines but they come as a set. Let's kind of go over those. First of all, uh, we talked about them last time, just as a bit of review. Uh, there's original goodness. The doctrine of original goodness says that man is created good and he is responsible and able to remain as such. In other words, man has the ability to choose to obey God, to believe, and so on and so forth. That's the doctrine of original goodness. The next doctrine we talked about was the doctrine of the fall of man through sin. And so in this doctrine, the Bible explains that man becomes subject to suffering and death because of disobedience. However, he retains the ability to choose right from wrong and the ability to respond to God. Very important because that you know, that idea was misrepresented, if you wish, in, uh, in uh, subsequent interpretations of this particular uh, doctrine. So that's the, the fall of man through sin. And then the third one we talked about was reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. So this doctrine explains the fact that God works throughout human history in order to save mankind. And this process of reconciliation is explained in 10 sub-doctrines which are the subject of our continuing study. Okay? So we've done you know, the first five. Inspiration of the Bible, the divinity of Christ, original goodness, the fall of man through sin, the reconciliation to God or back to God through Jesus Christ. Those are the first five major uh, Christian doctrines. Now we have those five under the fifth one, reconciliation with God through Christ, there are 10 sub-doctrines and those are the ones that we're going to discuss. So today we're going to talk about the first two sub-doctrines, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. Now those of you who've got worksheets, if you turn to the back, you'll see there's a list of those 10 sub-doctrines and you can put some notes there if you would like. And those of you watching uh, online or if you've gotten this uh, on a DVD, you can always go to BibleTalk.tv and go to the Understanding Your Religion section and download the, uh, the uh, worksheets if you like. Okay, so the first of the sub-doctrines that explain the major doctrine of reconciliation is the doctrine of election. So the word election simply means to choose, like politics, right? We're going to have an election. What do we do during an election of any kind? Well, we choose. We choose a candidate or we choose someone we want to vote for, so on and so forth. Biblical election is the process of in the process of reconciliation refers to the choice that God has made from the very beginning in connection with the reconciliation of man to himself. So election is about God's choice, not our choice. Okay? So the choice or the election that God made is based on His character and His will. So we look first of all, not just at the choice that He made, but we look first of all at the motivation for the choice. So first of all, 
Um, his um, character is dominated by the element of love. That's one of the things that motivates him. We read about that in 1 John 4, 7, 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the love in God's character purposes that His creation be reconciled or saved and returned back to Himself. Because God is a loving God, He wants to save mankind. So we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, it's talking about God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So God is love and because He is love, it moves him to work, right? To, to, to create a plan in order to reconcile fallen man back to himself. All right, and then one other point, God's election or God's choice, because he is a God of love, is that all men be saved and reconciled. So in order to fulfill his will, God made a choice. Now the choice was not that you know, some would be saved and some would be lost, because that would contradict what the scriptures say about him. It says he wants all to be saved, right? No, the choice, the thing that he chose or elected was Jesus Christ. He chose Jesus Christ as the one through whom everyone would be saved. So when we're talking about biblical election, we're talking about a God of the God of love making a choice. And what does he choose? He chooses to save mankind through Jesus Christ. He chooses Jesus. As I said, the doctrine of election centers on Jesus Christ, not on us. Jesus is the elected one. He's the one that is chosen. For what? Well, to carry out God's plan of salvation. So the doctrine of election does not explain how God saves us. It simply tells us who God chose in order to do the work of reconciliation. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 6, it says, And coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now some translations of this passage um, have this word translated into the English word you know, precious, but it doesn't convey the meaning. Uh, here the word choice, electos, means selected, chosen. Okay? So in context it means that it was previously selected, not simply, you know, it wasn't simply a, a precious stone that was set, you know, Jesus, not just a precious stone, but a previously selected, chosen stone. So what Peter is talking about here is that Jesus was the one that God chose to lay into a, uh, an important position that would support the salvation of mankind. So God chose, elected, selected Jesus as the instrument through whom His creation 
would be saved. That, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of election. Now, some people say, well, doesn't God make other choices? Sure. Every other choice made by God, you know, He chose Noah, for example, or Abraham, or the prophets, or special servants like Samson, for example. Every other choice made by God, these choices were done in order to serve His purpose of bringing Jesus Christ, His chosen one, to the earth in order to reconcile mankind to Himself. So we need to understand the idea that the Jewish nation was a stage upon which God would ultimately put His chosen one in order to accomplish the work of reconciliation. So these people that God chose, right? Noah, Abraham, these people, Moses, these people in the Bible, they were not selected to be saved or lost. They were chosen to serve God in carrying out part of His grand design. They could have refused. They had the ability to respond or to reject God's offer to participate in the plan to bring God's Son to earth. For example, the first king of Israel, Saul, right? Wasn't he chosen by God? Of course, he was chosen by God to serve in this capacity. But what happened? He disobeyed God and was ultimately replaced by David, another chosen servant who chose to obey. Another example in the New Testament, Judas. Wasn't he chosen as an apostle? He, he was chosen by Jesus, but what happened? He didn't believe. He rejected his opportunity to serve God in proclaiming Christ. So you need to understand, there's only one choice that God makes concerning salvation to accomplish it, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one that's going to accomplish it. All the other choices, people had the opportunity to reject or accept God's choice of them but he chose them in order to facilitate, if you wish, to expedite, using a more modern word, the, the process or the history or the plan, if you wish, that God was putting into place in order to save mankind. So, uh, for centuries, much of Protestant and subsequent evangelical doctrine has had as its base the concept that election meant that God arbitrarily chose some for salvation and others for damnation. And once the choice was made, no one or nothing could you know, undo that choice. As I said, this, this was the mistake that people made concerning the doctrine of election. So, sometimes people think, oh, election, that's, that's a Calvinistic doctrine. No, that's a biblical doctrine. That is a biblical doctrine. God chooses Christ. That's a biblical doctrine. Now it has been misinterpreted, if you wish, by others. For example, I'll give you a, um, a quote here. This is Calvin. He wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, volume three. He said, it is now sufficiently plain that God, by His secret course, chooses whom He will save while He rejects others. Okay. And then in another, uh, uh, in another writing, the Savoy Declaration in 1658 of the English Catechism, volume three, says the following. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Now, 
one of the reasons for these conclusions concerning the doctrine of election was, that, was this idea that this idea was uh, interpreted in light of uh, Augustine's teaching concerning original sin. And we went over that uh, you know, last time. You know, the idea of original sin. All men are born guilty of sin and without the ability to choose right or obey the gospel. So God is required to choose or elect those who will be saved, those who will be lost. That's how this, this false idea, this false notion uh, develop. So now that we understand the mistakes made in interpreting the idea of biblical election, let's look at what the Bible actually says about this idea. Okay? Biblical election. What does the Bible say? Well, first of all, it says that God has chosen Christ through whom He desires to save all men. Let's read 1 Timothy. It says, who desire, read this again just to reinforce the idea who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what God wants. He wants everyone to be saved, not just some. All right? For there's one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's the one that God elected, Jesus Christ. And then of course in 1 Peter it says, and coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice. There's the chosen one has been chosen and precious in the sight of God. So when God chooses or elects, He chooses or elects Jesus Christ to come and save mankind. Christ is the only choice that God makes. Let's read another passage here in Hebrews 10 this time. It says, therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O Lord. And so when God chooses or elects, He chooses or elects Christ to come and save mankind. First main idea. Secondly, God offers all men the opportunity to be saved through Jesus Christ. A little bit like the first one. The first one says that God wants all men to be saved. He, is, he has worked, He has planned that all men be saved, okay? not just some. And then the second idea is that He offers to all men the opportunity to be saved through Jesus Christ. And that's fairly uh, you know, uh, familiar passages that, that tell us this. Matthew 28, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then of course in Mark 16, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So where, where's the dividing line? Well, the dividing line is, is, is on the, you know, based on the response of the individual. The apostles are told, go out and preach the gospel to all nations. Everybody hears the gospels. The ones who respond with faith and obedience, they're the ones who are, who are saved. But everybody has an opportunity. So God wants all to be saved. He offers all the opportunity. Uh, every person who is of age of reason and of, the right, uh, and of right mind has the ability to respond. The gospel is not beyond our understanding, nor is it beyond our ability to obey. We are asked to give assent of our will in believing 
and we can do this. God does not demand something that is beyond us. He could have said, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you'll have to live a perfect life. You know, there it is right there. I'm telling you, everybody will know that if you want to go to heaven, you have to live a perfect life. Well, that's clear and we can understand that, but there's one problem. Nobody can do that. But that's not the offer he makes through Christ. Through Christ, he says, everyone can be saved. And the condition is that you believe in Jesus Christ and respond to him in faith, right? And when you do that, your sins are forgiven. That's how you become perfect. We don't become perfect through trying. We become perfect through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. All right, a third idea. Those who are united to Christ by faith share in His election. This is a tricky idea. Stay with me. All right, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then another passage in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Now, I'm back to my example about politics here to explain these passages. Remember what we're saying. Those who are united to Christ by faith, they share in His election. So let's go back to the example about politics, shall we? When it's a political race, what do we do? We choose one candidate, right? We choose just one to run for office. And those who eventually vote for him share in his victory if he wins, he or she wins, right? Well, in the same way, God chose just one. He chose Jesus Christ. He wins the victory over sin and death, and we share in His victory, not because He chose us. We share in the victory because we chose Christ through faith expressed in our obedience through the gospel. So how do we become the elect? Because we read about that in the Bible. The Bible calls us the elect. All right, well the, the mistaken idea is that we become the elect because God chooses us for salvation and rejects others for salvation. That's the mistaken idea. The proper idea is we become the elect, the chosen ones, because of our union with Jesus Christ, who is the only elect, the only chosen one of God. This, this union or association with Christ is accomplished through faith in Him as the Son of God. And that faith is expressed in our confession of faith, repentance, and baptism in Jesus' name. So how do we become the elect? Well, this elect status that we receive, we receive it by virtue of our union with the elected one. That is something that God has planned. Okay? Again, He doesn't choose us for salvation. He chooses Christ. And when we choose Christ, we share not only in the salvation, but we share in this concept of being part of the elect. We become the elect, the chosen ones, because we choose to respond to the gospel, which results in our unity with the elected one. Just like in politics. You vote for a certain individual, 
you share in his victory, her victory. You, you, you're the elected party, if you wish. You choose Jesus Christ through faith and obedience, then you become the elect. He is the, he is the chosen one. We become the chosen ones along with him when we choose him. Okay? Now, I, I want to kind of digress here just a little bit because uh, I think it'll make a little more sense, this, this idea. If we talk a little bit about the history of the restoration movement, and you'll see in a second how I kind of connect these two. This teaching here that I've just kind of explained to you, this teaching about the freedom to choose, the ability to respond to the gospel, and the potential of salvation for all men, these are the ideas that fired up the early restoration movement in the 18th and 19th century and from which our present fellowship of churches of Christ come from. Somebody says, well, you know, churches of Christ, you know, where, where do we come from? What, what's the history? Well, we come from a movement that began called the Restoration Movement. The idea was to restore biblical teaching, biblical ideas, and to do away with all kinds of man-made religious, uh, all, all kinds of man-made religious ideas, like barnacles that had been added to the church you know, over centuries. Strip away all these man-made things and simply restore the church of the New Testament as it is described in the New Testament. So there were a couple of key figures. Alexander and Thomas Campbell, for example, Barton W. Stone, John Smith, these were preachers from that era who actually began as Calvinists and Presbyterian ministers in Europe and here in early America. Their study of the scriptures moved them away from the Calvinistic point of view and led them to preach that God loved all men and wanted all men to be saved. You have heard this over and over again. You, you assume that everybody thinks like that, but there was a time that this was a kind of a new idea, actually a restored biblical idea that had been lost somehow. So they taught that through simple faith and obedience to the gospel, which was possible for everyone, any person could be saved. If you read their histories, you'll find that they were censured and, and they were put out of their Presbyterian churches. And so they left their roots and they began forming their own congregations, calling themselves simply Christians. And they began to do away with other religious traditions that had no basis in the Bible. By the middle of the 20th century, the churches of Christ that grew out of this restoration movement was the fastest growing religious group in America within what is referred to as Christianity. Now one of the reasons for its success was the belief that God wanted all men to be saved. The belief that all had the ability and the responsibility to respond to the gospel and the effort by the church to share the gospel with, with everyone. This was like a, a new idea, a refreshing idea. Let's get back to the Bible and what it says about being saved. Now, in recent years, the church has kind of slowed its growth because, well, unfortunately, it's kind of moved away from this principle. When we begin to doubt the universality of sin, all men are sinners, all men are lost, and the need for all men to be saved, we lose our edge for evangelism and the church kind of slows its growth. But these ideas you know, about uh, it, it's not simply some for salvation and others for damnation, but that all men can be saved and so on and so forth. 
This, this was the touchstone. This, these were the ideas that fired up the uh, restoration movement and that we continue to preach today. There's still a lot of people that, that, that don't understand this, uh, this idea. Okay, so we've talked about the doctrine of election, correct? God elects, God chooses Christ and those who choose Christ share in His election. Basically that's the biblical doctrine of election. All right, let's talk about predestination now. Closely linked to the doctrine of election is the biblical doctrine of predestination. Again, before I explain the biblical concept of predestination, I need to review with you what was understood as predestination as it was erroneously taught in connection with the doctrine of original sin. Calvinists taught that predestination meant that God knew in advance of their existence who He would choose for salvation and who He would choose for damnation. In other words, He knew in advance who would be chosen and who would be rejected. That was basically the idea of predestination. So in order to get a clearer picture, let's first look more carefully at the meaning of the word itself. The word predestination or foreknowledge is the knowledge or the foreknowledge of a final result or the end of a matter. In other words, you know the end of a matter in advance. And, and we all have that ability to a certain extent. You know, I exercise foreknowledge in the fact that if I put my hand into the fire, it will burn. I don't have to put my hand into the fire to know that it'll burn. I know the result before the event. Okay, so that's, that's foreknowledge. Now, predestination as a doctrine in the process of reconciliation refers to God's knowledge of the final result or the end of a matter. More specifically, it means that He knows the final result that His choice will produce. Okay? He makes a choice, Jesus Christ, that's election. His predestination, or rather predestination, says that He knows what the result of His choice will be at the very beginning. Before it all finishes, He already knows the end result of that choice. Okay? Let's, let's read a passage of scripture. It says in Romans chapter 8, it says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to begun conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Ephesians 1.5, it says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. So what's Paul talking about here? He's saying that God knew His choice of Christ as the one to accomplish salvation would result in the salvation of all those who were united to Him. Okay? In other words, He foreknew that sin would lead to death. And so He predestines that all who believe in Christ will be saved. In other words, when He made the choice of Christ, he knew that all those who would choose Christ would ultimately be saved. It's like a guarantee, if you wish. In still other words, predestination expresses the idea that God knew from the very beginning that His choice of Jesus would have the result of reconciling mankind to Himself. All right. Let me give you a practical example of predestination at work. Another one, if you wish. Let's say I want to satisfy my desire for ice cream. 
All right, I have a desire. I, that, that is my will. My will is being expressed. What is my will? That I have ice cream, a banana split, a Dairy Queen. Okay? That's my will. So what do I do? Well, I make a choice. I choose Dairy Queen. I could have gone to Brahms or I could have gone to McDonald's or something, but I choose Dairy Queen. That's my choice. That's my election. I choose a Dairy Queen banana split to be the way that my will will be satisfied. My will is that I desire ice cream. My choice is Dairy Queen banana split. So I choose a way to satisfy my will. I elect. All right? Now, I predestine, I foreknow that the result of my choice will satisfy my will. I know, I know in advance, before I even take a bite of that Dairy Queen banana split, I know in advance that once I eat it, I'll be satisfied. Okay? So my, my will is right, uh, for ice cream, some sort of ice cream treat. My choice is Dairy Queen banana split, my election. And my predestination is, I know that after I'm finished eating that, it'll be great, it'll be delicious, I'll be satisfied. So this is how God's election and predestination works as well. His will is satisfied by His choice. It works perfectly for Him because He is perfect. Now, it doesn't always work perfectly for us for a lot of reasons, you know, because human will is not always reliable. You know, just because I will ice cream, that means a good thing for me. Maybe there's too much sugar, maybe I shouldn't have so much sugar, or certainly too much fat, you know, and so on and so forth. So even though I will something, doesn't mean it's a good thing. And human foreknowledge is limited. You know, maybe there'd be no bananas that day at the DQ. They didn't have banana delivery. You know? Or maybe the DQ is closed for repairs. You know, the ice cream machine is broken. Have you never driven through McDonald's to get a cone or something? They say, sorry, the machine is broken, right? So I have no way of knowing all the variables you know, so that my foreknowledge is, is, is not perfect. All right? But God, however, has exercised His will in perfect accord with His justice and mercy. In other words, what He wants for us is perfect and loving and gracious. And God's choice or election, that is also perfect. He chooses Christ who cannot fail in His accomplishing of God's will and fulfilling uh, God's foreknowledge. All right? So our faith is based on the sureness of God's election and predestination. If He chooses Christ to save us, then Christ will succeed in that task. His choice is sure. He, he doesn't make a mistake in the choice that He makes. If his foreknowledge says that all who are united to Christ by faith and that faith expressed in repentance and baptism will be saved, those people will be saved, then those who believe in Jesus and are baptized will be saved because his foreknowledge is sure. So God knows for sure that his plan to reconcile us through Jesus Christ will work. Okay? He doesn't force us to choose. He doesn't, make, you know, he doesn't make the choice for us. We do the choosing to believe and to obey or not. Our spiritual destiny is always in our own hands. He merely knows the results because He is eternal and He guarantees us eternal life with Him 
if we choose Christ, the one He has chosen and guaranteed to save us. All right, hope that's not too much. First two doctrines, first two sub-doctrines, and they go together, these. You know, they have to go together. That's why you know, I, I put them together in the same lesson, because they complement each other. So let's kind of just do one final review to make sure we've got this in our minds. First of all, let's, let's you know, look at election. Election. This is a Christ-centered doctrine, not man-centered. God chooses Christ, not man. Right? God doesn't choose one for salvation, one, no, no. The choice that God makes in order to fulfill His will that all men be saved, He chooses Christ. The only people He chooses are chosen to serve His plan, not chosen for salvation. He chose Abraham, you know, to, to, to fulfill his plan to form a, a, the nation of Israel, right? Uh, Abraham could have refused, okay? Some he chose to serve, others who were chosen refused, but the choice to serve was always theirs. And I've given a couple of examples of people God chose to serve in some way and uh, who refused. Demas, for example, in the New Testament, one of uh, Paul's uh, uh, disciples, if you wish, uh, followed for a while and then he, he left to go back into the world. He was chosen, but he, he left. Okay? So remember, election is uh, God choosing Christ in order to fulfill His plan of reconciling man to Himself. Predestination. Predestination. This doctrine refers to a divine characteristic of God wherein he knows in advance the end result of choices that he has made as well as the choices that we have made. In other words, because he is God, because he lives outside of the time continuum, he knows the results, but he does not force us to choose. He knows what we choose and he knows the end result of those choices. But that, the fact that he knows this doesn't mean that he's forced us to make the choice. The beautiful thing about predestination, the beautiful you know, um, concept about this is that it's a guarantee. It's like a warranty. If you choose Christ, you are guaranteed to be saved. Why? Because God, who knows everything, God knows the end result of that choice. Okay? So we, we are, we are uh, guaranteed salvation if we become the elect, if we share the election of Christ, God guarantees it. So that, that's the interplay between the doctrine of election and the doctrine of pre, um, uh, predestination. These two are, you know, are, are, are complementary, if you wish. Okay, so these are comforting teachings because they assure us that the choices God calls us to make are based on His limitless and loving foreknowledge. All right, well that's it for uh, this time. Next time we're going to tackle another of the sub-doctrines and that is the doctrine of atonement. Okay? So I hope that you will be there for that particular lesson. Thank you very much for your attention.